Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Radio Westeros. House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 6, The Princess and the Queen. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the sixth episode of House of the Dragon, called The Princess and the Queen. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are fans of the books. But we'll avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon, although we're going to have a spoiler section at the end and we'll give you a giant heads up for that. So whatever your A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones background, I think we have a lot to offer. This episode had a huge time jump from the last episode, we went forward around 10 years. While some characters were aged up, several were recast. We said goodbye to cast members Millie Olcock and Emily Carey, and who, who were replaced by Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook, as well as Theo Nate and Savannah Steen, as Lainor and Lena Valerian, who were replaced by John McMillan and Nana Blondell. Last week, we were concerned with how smooth the jump would be and how viewers would react to the recasting. The writers were faced with a difficult task, but personally, I think that they nailed it. So much story had happened in the in-between, yet somehow everything came out quite balanced. New characters were introduced efficiently and the prior themes were maintained and built upon, so we didn't feel the story was a complete reset. The writers of House of the Dragon have earned a lot of trust and I think they're making this difficult to adapt generational story work for the screen in style. This episode gave us a close look at a new generation of characters and of course these are the ones who will grow up to exist within the bitter environment fermented by the adults in the story. The action is now moving very quickly along, relationships are forming and dissolving before you know it, people are dying just as you get to know them but I still didn't get the sensation that things are being too rushed, even with these huge skips and the change in focus. With the shocks and tragedies of this episode, the two surprising deaths by fire working in parallel here, House of the Dragon is getting wilder every week, and we can sense in the pit of our stomachs that this chaos is only just beginning. 
We have so much to say about this episode and we can't wait to go into more depth. So without further ado, let's say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hello. Hi and welcome everyone. And I realized last week that I've been neglecting to say hello to the future. So hi everyone in the future who's watching us uh, pre-recorded. Thank you all for being here. This is the longest episode of the season so far, 67 minutes. Uh, that is actually tied with the upcoming episode eight. Uh, it's the two longest episodes of the season. So we have lots to say today, including welcome back, Emily. Thank you. Glad to be back. Before we begin, we do want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. And patrons get lots of uh, fun perks like early release and exclusive content and membership in our uh, patron discord. So if you want to be a patron of the show, you can find the details on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And we're going to start with a quick shout out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragon's Tale patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Crispy, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter in the chat, hello, Maltu, John Wargarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jag Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Also in the chat, hello and welcome to all of you and thank you. So, as I said, without further ado, we'll dive right into this episode. It begins with Rhaenyra giving birth. This is her third child since her marriage to Laenor Valerian 10 years ago. Uh, we do have a strong contrast here with her mother Emma's birth scene from episode one. Uh, Rhaenyra seems to be going very smoothly. She's surrounded by women there's not a maester in sight, nor is she positioned on her back, as her mother was, but in a much more sensible, upright position, which leads to this joyous moment of the baby being placed in her arms, just moments into the scene. Uh, this actually is particularly noteworthy, seeing this baby on, on uh, screen, since even though Alicent, the queen, has had three children of her own, and this is actually Rhaenyra's third child. Um, all those births have taken place off screen, uh, and this is the first birth scene since that uh, dramatic one in the first episode. Uh, we did have in episode two an awkward moment where Alicent mentioned how easy her own um, delivery of Aegon was, but uh, I also, uh, in in terms of making uh, drawing contrasts, I want to make note of this passage from Fire and Blood, which uh, makes a distinction between the princess and the queen uh, it, with regard to their childbirths. Childbirth exacted a toll on the princess. The weight that Rhaenyra gained during her pregnancies never entirely left her, and by the time her youngest boy was born, she had grown stout and thick of waist, the beauty of her girlhood a fading memory, though she was but 20 years of age. According to Mushroom, this only served to deepen her resentment of her stepmother, Queen Alicent, who remained slender and graceful at half again her age. So a few differences. They're obviously not leaning into the physical descriptions there. And uh, both uh, Rhaenyra and Alicent are, I think, around 28 in this ep episode here. So uh, slight change from the source materials there, but uh, definitely a contrast between the princess and the queen in the way these things are presented 
And in spite of things going smoothly for Rhaenyra, it has becomes very clear that there is this contrast with Alicent, because no matter how easy Alicent's births were, the queen surely has to know what it means to send word that she wishes to see the newborn baby the minute it is born. Rhaenyra is disheveled and wan-looking, exactly like you might expect, and she's still being attended by her midwives. She hasn't even delivered the afterbirth yet. The baby's literally still attached to her, and the queen is calling for it. When uh, word arrives, Rhaenyra immediately makes ready to bring the child to her stepmother. And that walk from her own chambers to the king and queens is arduous. It involves passing many courtiers and climbing an immense flight of stairs, things that I would never even have contemplated doing moments after uh, giving birth to my children. In spite of Allison's protest that Rhaenyra really should rest and she shouldn't have made this trip herself, we know that the alternative was for Rhaenyra to allow the baby to get, be taken from her, and she clearly wasn't about to allow that. This is a power play, pure and simple. And in the first several minutes of the episode, we see how the dynamic between this two, these two women has changed dramatically, leaning into the theme suggested by the title of the episode. And uh, before we leave this scene, I want to shout out the obvious care that the production team is taking with this subject matter, which uh, we will revisit once again in this episode. Once again, the presence of female writers with Sarah Hess taking the lead on this one and their team of midwifery consultants is obvious. I personally don't think I've ever seen Afterbirth mentioned in a TV show or movie, uh, let alone the discomfort of suppressing lactation or the embarrassment of... uh, uh, breast milk leaking uh, in public, which is which are things that are shown in succeeding scenes. So these things might go over a lot of people's heads, but they're not lost on many of us. And I think it's a real testament to thoughtfulness that's going into the show. The real, they really want to show reality. And that's a great thing. But Rhaenyra was not alone when she made that trek to up to the royal apartment. So let's talk about her husband, Laenor Valerian. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I love talking about Valerian. So Lenor, you know, comes in to congratulate Rhaenyra. He's in a good mood uh, on the delivery of their third son and is instantly kind of brought down and horrified to find her that she's about to drag herself and the babe up to see the queen. So he affixes himself, you know, right to her side. I think this is a nice kind of nod to something that they do in the books, which is to note that Lenor was on hand nearby for the birth of his sons, despite possibly not biologically being their father. I, for one, was relieved to see him there, considering how easily he could have formed resentment towards Rhaenyra following the death of Joffrey Lawnmouth at the wedding feast last episode 10 years ago. But I mean, that seed could have sprouted quite a bit of distance or discontent between them. You know, certainly Rhaenyra didn't condone Kristen Cole's actions, but the optics weren't really great for her either. You know, her once lover killing Lenor's sworn sword at their wedding welcome feast. You know, like I said, 10 years on the surface, they seem to have made their marriage of duty and responsibility work the best they can for, for them and for their son's sake as well. Speaking of sons, speaking of Joffrey, this is the name that Lenor chooses for the new baby, immediately reminding the viewers of the sacrifice that Lenor is making in this arrangement and this marriage. Rhaenyra isn't really thrilled by him blurting out this name without a discussion, but she waits until they're in private again to say so, you know, continuing to present that united front when the queen and her father are around. 
Leonor's not the perfect spouse, obviously, you know, cluelessly likening childbirth to taking a lance through the shoulder. Uh, He cannot relate to her at all, but he's trying. And I think that, you know, the continued theme in A Song of Ice and Fire of a woman's battle being the birthing bed, it seems like all Westerosi men have been kind of given the same sex ed talk at some point. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) true. So you get... Right at the end of this interview with the king and queen, Alicent makes a snide remark to Lenor that only he hears. She says, do keep trying. Someday you may get one that looks like you, which is taken right from the text of Fire and Blood. And, you know, following her obvious inspection of the child's hair, this is the first hint, if you haven't read Fire and Blood, that there's anything unusual about Rhaenyra's family. And prior to the time jump uh, between these two last two episodes, any relationship with Harwin Strong was only sort of hinted at being something that might happen. It hadn't yet to occur and has since clearly taken place entirely off screen. Even in this episode, we're limited really to two on-screen interactions between Harwin and Rhaenyra, including uh, this next scene where uh, they come back to her chambers and there's Harwin playing with the two older boys. He's escorted them back to the apartments after they selected a new an egg for their new baby brother, which is very sweet. And Harwin gets to meet the new baby. It's really touching moments, full of significant glances and tenderness. Nothing's really said, but all those glances say a lot. The second scene with Rhaenyra and Harwin is a much another emotionally charged one that we're going to be discussing later. The knowledge, I think, that Sir Harwin, son of the hand, and new Lord Commander of the City Watch, is probably the father of Rhaenyra's children, is teased out gradually via these sort of hints, rumors, innuendo, much the way it might have been, you know, in real time or as as it was playing out here in their lives, showing that. You know, he basically accepts his situation for what it is. Lenor takes the, the two older kids and leaves his wife and Harwin alone with the new baby to get to know each other, I guess. Uh, the, the two older boys uh, are brought back to visit their dragons in the dragon pit. Yo, boy. Yeah, so here we got our first look inside the dragon pit. It's a huge oval building with high stone walls and a domed roof. Enough room for dragons to live and perhaps fly around together in the darkness, tended to by the dragon keepers. I did just see a question come in from Monkismo about the intelligence of dragons, and George has said they're in the ballpark of dogs. So I like to think of them as giant dogs, which makes me love them even more, flying dogs there. And the the dragon pit is a very important building because so much Targaryen power comes from these dragons and they're also in a city, so it would be real carnage if they were kept outside. This scene is also the first time we get to see Rhaenyra and Alicent's kids, although they will be pitted against each other later on, which is obviously where the greater story is going. Here we see Aegon sort of teaming up with Gisseries and Lucerys to play a prank on Aemond. The former three all have dragons now, Aegon with Sunfire, Jace with Vermax, and Luke with Arax. So Aemond is the only one without a dragon there, which leads to him being the butt of their jokes. Aegon is immediately characterised as nonchalant. He's the oldest and 
has already had experience with Sunfire. I think that's obvious. He's practically yawning when Jace is excitedly about to feed Vermax a goat. Seeing a dragon keeper teaching the kids about a young dragon, I thought was very interesting since in the main series, we see Daenerys and her dragons, but she teaches them more instinctively. She doesn't really have the key information that, that, that was um, lost to time there. So it's great to get some background exposition when the Keeper was explaining about dragon bonding and so on. The relationship between Valyrians and dragons is ancient and it's evidently very difficult to house and train them as the burns on the Keeper's face demonstrate. Jace says the magic word Dracaris and Vermax scorches a terrified goat and then the kids play their prank. They bring in a dragon for Aemond but the dragon is a pig and they call it the Pink Dread which is a humorous reference to Aegon the Conqueror's gigantic dragon which was also written by Viserys before its death, Balerion the Black Dread. The boys have a sort of schoolboy peer group dynamic going on and here the humiliation of being given a pig instead of a dragon spurs Aemond to venture into Cyrax's lair by himself. Although he nearly gets roasted for his effort, the takeaway should be that Aemond is desperate to have his own dragon and that for a young small boy he does have some fearlessness and boldness about him. So yeah there was an introduction to Aemond there and why don't we continue talking about Alicent's kids? There were subsequent scenes with Helena and Aegon. So following the dragon pit scene was one with Alicent and her second child, Helena. Given she was just a babe before the time jump, this was our first proper look at Helena, who is immediately introduced as having an obsession with insects. And she has a collection of scorpions and beetles and knows much more about the anatomy of a millipede. Although it's clear she's highly intelligent, she does seem withdrawn. And all of this serves to put us in mind of her father Viserys, despite being a king who needs to continually make crucial decisions and deal with courts and councils and so on, we've seen enough of Viserys to know that left to his own devices, he would be hiding in his room with his model of Valyria. Perhaps insects are to Helena what models are to Viserys. Given that the other kids are all males vying for each other's attention at every moment and they're going for respect in the training yard. It was nice to contrast that with a gentler scene here, even if Alison seemed at the edge of her patient talking insects with a daughter who visibly flinched when she was touched. The scene then shifts when a member of the Kingsguard drags Alicent's third child, Aemond, who we'd seen in the dragon pit, into the room after his escapades into Cyrax's lair. And when Helena says he did it again, we understand that the boy has even more desire to mount a dragon than we thought or knew about. Indeed, Alicent mentions his obsession with those beasts and then promises him that he'll have a dragon one day. When Helena responds that he'll have to close an eye, we're not sure if she's talking about Aemond or the Millipede, and we're going to go into further detail about this in the spoiler segment at the end. Altogether, by focusing on one quirky and memorable aspect of these children, for Aemond his desire to ride a dragon, for Helena her insect reverie, the writers managed to make us feel that we understand these characters 
pretty well within limited screen time, one or two scenes in this case. And I think this is one of the tricks of the time jump that the writers employed to land us in the current story smoothly and effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, quirks, like you say. I think they do a nice job setting this up with all the kids. Eldest son Aegon's quirk is a little different than his siblings, I have to say. This lad seems to have a bit of a penchant for sexual deviance. Uh, you know, when we see him alone for the first time, he's standing in a familiar-looking window in the Red Keep that some might recognize as King Tommen's window uh, from Game of Thrones. He's rubbing one out as he looks out at King's Landing. You know, between this and his antics with his nephews in the dragon pit, it really creates this immediate characterization of a teenage boy who must feel pretty untouchable and who does not seem to take things nearly as seriously as he should. I mean, you know, did he think about what would happen if he fell or what the small folk who are just trying to go about their business in the streets below might have thought? Hopefully it's kind of, you know, not a public-facing window. I don't know. You know, the young prince does get his comeuppance pretty quickly when his mother walks in and he kind of dives or I guess flops back into his bed. Honestly, like I just laughed out loud. That was some good comedic physical acting there. Both mother and son are, uh, you know, more than glad to just breeze right past the awkwardness of what just happened as Allison instead focuses on grilling him for his treatment of Amond. You know, I have to say Aegon is a bit of a piss poor liar, but Allison seems to care more about being able to blame her vile grandsons than, you know, who actually did it or how involved Aegon was. This reminded me of Queen Cersei being so unconcerned with Joffrey's part in the incident with Micah the Butcher's boy in Game of Thrones. Uh, however, for Alicent's part, in private, she does at least acknowledge an, uh, Aegon's fault here and demands that he, you know, keep it to within the family, the immediate nuclear family, you know, and to also wake up. She tells him that even just by existing, it makes him a threat to Rhaenyra and her sons and thus puts a target on his back. We see Alicent has chosen the prepare Aegon for rule option that her father gave her in the previous episode rather than cleaving to Rhaenyra and relying on her mercy. But how much of that prep um, that, you know, she's been doing and, you know, prepping Aegon as well has actually sunk in for her son at this point. So far, what they've chosen to show us about him uh, shows that not much. You know, he seems pretty indifferent to the idea of kingship, currently more interested in the typical teenage boy activities of pranks and wanks. So good luck to him. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so after we see Alicent with her three children, uh, she goes to visit her husband, the king. <laughs> So in keeping with the title of this episode being a strong theme throughout most of Allison's dialogue with other people really in this entire episode centers around her obsession with Rhaenyra's indiscretions. So in the first of several conversations she has with the king, she begins by complaining about the prank played on Aemond and Viserys, you know, seems pretty realistic it seems to realize that Aegon who's the eldest was probably the instigator but Allison only wants to blame Rhaenyra's boys and as they the discussion turns to dragons Allison reveals her true thoughts when she proclaims it's a wonder that Jason Luke's eggs ever hatched which I think is really a curious tack to take since you know even if Lenor isn't the boy's father Jason Luke have 
just as much Targaryen blood as her own sons. So I'm not really sure where she's going with that, but obviously it's something that's weighing on her mind. Uh, that typical, you know, she thinks they're bastards, and we all know what Westerosis think about bastards. Viserys tells a strange story about a black mare and a silver stallion having a chestnut foal. Uh, it's supposed to be a metaphor for the mysteries of genetics, but Alicent uh, doesn't want to buy it. She just demands to know if he witnessed the act himself, which, again, you know, implying that perhaps the silver wasn't the real father, but this this is really a tortured metaphor. Uh, but again, it ends with a nonsensical complaint from the queen, since presumably she hasn't personally witnessed who Rhaenyra is sleeping with. So I don't know, you know, if that's the bar you're setting. Well, I guess then you have no proof about Rhaenyra and we should just move on, which is what Viserys would like to do. Viserys, did I mention he's the king? Uh, flat out commands her, do not speak of this again. Yet in the very next scene, she's not only speaking of it, but she's speaking about her husband, the king, behind his back. And she appears to be actively plotting with a member of the King's Guard to expose her stepdaughter. In the Inside the Episode featurette, Miguel Sapochnik, who's the episode's director, referred to Alicent as Kristen Cole's new muse. Elsewhere, he stated that he described Cole as a thug to Fabian Frankel uh, early in the production, who, for his own part, has admitted that his character is not the noble white knight. He appears to be in episodes two, three, and four, pointing out how he struck Damon in the back during their tourney duel in episode one as a good example of Cole showing his true colors. So these traits are important because Alicent began her association with Sir Kristen under false pretenses, believing that he was a noble and decent man who had been wronged by Rhaenyra. This misconception colors her opinion of her stepdaughter and in this episode, we're treated to the uh, supposedly noble knight calling the princess, who's the heir to the throne he's sworn to protect, a brazen and relentlessly evil woman. He likens her to a spider sucking her prey dry, and he boldly names her a spoiled cunt, uh, which might have been a bridge too far if we remember that Alicent was or is at heart quite conservative, and she appears pretty shocked by this. Uh, you know, her conservative nature is actually what's driving her disgust with her free-spirited former friend. So Cole perceives his overstepping and apologizes and is admonished by the queen that they must hew to honor and decency and to each other. Uh, I think implying that, you know, the queen has few enough allies and we're supposed to, you know, understand that Cole is one of her principal allies, if not her principal ally. Uh, given her apparent disrespect for her husband and her husband's wishes, uh, born from his refusal to see Rhaenyra as she does, but also perhaps from his lengthy illness and perceived weakness. You know, we saw her being sort of unhappy with their intimacy in previous episode, uh, not to mention her own resentment for her lack of personal agency, I think it's interesting to see Alicent attempting to seize political agency by aligning herself with a series of men whose main interest in her is purely selfish. And that actually begins with her father, who's pressing Aegon's claim was due to pressure from his own family uh, to advance their interests. 
And he actually manufactured this sort of crisis where Rhaenyra was a threat to Alicent's children in order to manipulate Alicent's cooperation against her former friend. But that's continued with Kristen Cole, who's still angry at Rhaenyra for wounding his pride 10 years ago. It's not clear what Alicent gets from her association with Cole other than an ally, which she obviously needed in her father's absence. Uh, But this ally's loyalty was bought by an act of kindness that he's probably incapable of repaying and might not have deserved anyways. As we'll see shortly, there is another courtier whose relationship with the queen is even more puzzling than Kristen Cole's. But first, let's head across the narrow sea to Pentos. Yeah, yeah. So we open on Pentos, where we are first introduced to Daenerys and Viserys Targaryen at Illyrio Mopatis' manse in Game of Thrones. So we've been there before. After spending so much time in King's Landing this season, we finally get to see Essos again, by Dragonback, actually, at first. Unlike little baby dragon Vermax, uh, this time we see Caraxes soaring through the skies with the largest and oldest dragon living. That's right, I am talking about Vagar, legendary mount of Lena Valerian, as well as Visenya and Balon Targaryen before her. I'd personally been wanting to see Lena Mount Vagar since the much younger version of Lena spoke with uh, spoke about Vagar to Viserys in episode two. So uh, you best believe I was out of my seat when this happened. You know, they soar through the skies together, and it's the first glimpse that we see of Lena and Damon's marriage, full of exploration, daring, travel, and yeah, fire. Vagar lets go of this huge burst of flame, and Caraxes flies through the fireball with Damon on his back. You know, both dragon and rider come out unscathed, much to the awe of the crowd of Pentoshi that are looking on from the walls. I'm not a physicist or anything, but I have to say that it was probably some combination of aerodynamics and maybe some special Valyrian blood that Damon came away without even like a singe or a hair out of place. Um, It's a nice nod to the oft-asserted claim that fire cannot hurt a dragon, though it may be a bit more nuanced than that, considering we see another character with Valyrian blood faces the flames later that episode. Uh, We then move indoors and we meet the rest of the family. Um, You know, it's been 10 years and yeah, they've got a family now. The twins Bela and Reyna are now eight years old, meaning that Damon and Lena have been together since shortly after their first dance at that royal wedding. Bela has already bonded with her dragon, Moondancer, who we do not see this episode, while Reyna's egg remains unhatched. Uh, We also see that Lena is heavily pregnant with another child, and on the surface, they look like a pretty happy family. They're arranged at dinner with a diplomatic and flattering Prince of Pentos. Uh, Prince Reggio opens the dinner that they're having with a reminder of the ties that House Targaryen and Pentos have had in the past. Uh, He credits the city's safety and success to aid that they received from Daemon's ancestor, Aegon the Conqueror. They they make reference to the Century of Blood, a period following the fall of Valyria that led to a ton of chaos and war in Essos as kind of the various remnants and cities of the Valyrian Empire kind of collapsed and reformed into new, new governments and alliances and things like that. Uh, This exposition is mostly meant for the audience, since Damon and Lena, you know, have been abroad for a long time. You know, surely they know their histories and have been flattered by the prince before. But it also serves as setup for the prince's request. Call Pentos your permanent home and help us defend it from our enemies. And you can keep this manse, be granted lands and incomes, and finally have a new place to really call home. 
you know, these enemies that we hear of um, that they need to defend Pentos from are not new to Damon. Uh, you know, we know that this is the triarchy again. They're, they were funding Kragos Drehar, the crab feeder in the War of the Stepstones, and are also a problem for Pentos now. You know, this offer is received a little awkwardly with Damon seemingly ready to accept on the spot while Lena looks a bit more hesitant. You know, no decision is really made at this point. Um, and, you know, we kind of continue with that later. <laughs> we will continue with that. But why don't we go back to the Red Keep with this training yard scene? As I said earlier, in the Dragon Pit, Aegon teamed up with Jace and Luke to humiliate Aemond. But by now, from other contexts, we can tell that the real rivalry is going to be between Rhaenyra's kids and Alicent's. The training yard scene did a lot to cement those dynamics and outline how rivalry and even pettiness between the adults and the story is permeating through and affecting the kids. Whereas the training yard scene early in a Game of Thrones with the Lannisters versus the Stark children sparring against each other, that highlighted the greater rivalry of the two houses via children. Here the adults are actively using children to channel their own rivalries. This is a generational story. And as Ryan Condor said in the Inside the Episode segment, we can now sense it's becoming increasingly focused on this new generation and how in this long setup, the politics of the parents has laid the groundwork for these deep-rooted problems between the kids that we just know is going to slip over into great conflict at some point. We get a taste of this conflict in a controlled environment in the training yard as Kristen Cole teaches the kids how to fight. King Viserys is watching on, remarking to his hand that the lads playing swords together is going to bring them close as close-knit family. Yeah, right. We see the writer's immediate answer to that sentiment when Cole clearly favours Alicent's kids with his attention. When Cole's methods and loyalties are challenged by the captain of the City Watch, Jace and Luke's biological father, Harwin, we know that whatever bonds the boys may form will be broken by adults seeking to interfere and exert their influence. In response to Harwin's intervention, Kristen pits Aegon against Jace. We already know that one day these two might be rival claimants to the throne, but rather than a, a team-building exercise to nurture a friendship, Cole encourages the four to five-year older and stronger Aegon to attack Jace with whatever he has, much to Harwin's frustration. After Jace bravely fights back, the two men whisper words of advice to the boys, and it's like two boxing coaches in opposing corners. Cole encourages Aegon to fight on the front foot and he powers through Jace's defences and he knocks him to the dirt instead of attempting to instill any degree of chivalry into the teaching. Cole takes the Alyssa Thorne approach to mentoring and tells Aegon basically to take no mercy, show no mercy. The scene is obviously not about tutoring anymore. It's about Cole's allegiance to Alison, pitting the kids against each other and aggravating Harwin as fully as possible. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and eventually that bait that he's setting becomes too tempting for Harwin to resist. 
As Cole urges Aegon to continue viciously humiliating his much younger opponent, Harwin decides he's had enough of this slanted tutelage here and pulls Aegon away from Jace aggressively. Uh, this seems to give Cole what he's been aiming for, an emotional reaction that he can use as a reason to question Harwin's investment in Rhaenyra's children. The way that he draws out the accusation is meant to gather the attention of those in the yard and provoke Harwin even further. So Harwin then knocks Kristen down and delivers many satisfying, at least to me and maybe the chat too, uh, punches right to the face. But, you know, Cole is no stranger to a fight and seems frustratingly unbothered. He's smirking like we just saw with a, that's what I thought as the Kingsguard, you know, his Kingsguard brothers pull Harwin off of him. This is the second instance of Cole behaving badly in public and getting away scot-free. The first being, of course, 10 years prior when he beat Joffrey Lawnmouth to death at a wedding and apparently still got to keep his white cloak. This is a little bit of a shift from the initial framing of Cole coming from nothing and having no privilege or protection. He seems to be enjoying plenty of privilege here now that Alicent and others continue to free him from the consequences of his violent tendencies. Yeah, it's true. And Harwin... Although it was satisfying to to watch Kristen Cole get beaten up, you know that it, that really he'd provoke that situation. Yeah, show it again. Yeah, I mean when he's smiling, it's not as satisfying. No. Right? <laughs> yeah, he knew what he was doing. So let's look at the consequences of that violence. With Rhaenyra trying to focus on baby Joffrey, the last thing she wanted to hear was that there's been an incident on the training yard, but news of the fight between her not-so-secret lover and Kristen Cole makes its way very quickly to her. From the secret passage Damon once revealed to her, she overhears Lionel Strong giving Harwin a good dressing down, telling his son how ashamed he is, although he's trying his best to act for the good of Viserys and the realm by being a loyal and upstanding hand, he's still a man with a family that wants to be proud of his house. He tells Harwin that in no uncertain terms, he's ashamed of his behaviour and Harwin defends himself by calling Kristen Cole insufferable. Lionel counters with a line about laying his hands hands on Prince Aegon, which he did, and that's a very serious offence, before lurching into the topic of Rhaenyra's three brown-haired children. He alludes to these accusations as this treachery and your intimacy with the princess and spells out that if it could be proven, Harwin, Rhaenyra and their children could potentially be executed. If there were no other rivaling factions, then this situation might not be such a problem. Viserys seems happy enough to be willfully blind and anyone outside of royalty caught making an insinuation would likely have their tongue ripped out. But here we know there is a rival faction and Lyle knows that Alicent could one day use the issue of the children's paternity against Rhaenyra and Harwin and therefore how strong would figure in this negative equation. Although he's trying to act selflessly, Lionel wants how strong to proudly be remembered as an instrumental part of a successful reign and so Harwin is putting all of his good work in jeopardy and risks potentially bringing the house to ruin. Even in his wrath Lionel still can't say exactly what he means. He continues to use allusions but can't say the words that the royal children are Harwin's biological children. In Lionel's mind 
if the words are spoken aloud, it would only bring more credence to the rumors. So he bites his tongue and he continues to use allusions in the scene later with Viserys. And I, I think this scene outlines the role family invariably has upon political decisions. Even the truest, noblest heart can be swayed by matters of the blood. And so we see Lionel's heart in conflict with itself. To his credit, Lionel is painfully aware that Harwin's situation damages his integrity as the king's hand. And yeah, it's great to see someone who is so self-aware and honest. And as we'll see later, he feels so uncomfortable that he feels compelled to confess this inner conflict to the king in person. Yeah, so fresh off of witnessing all of this, Rhaenyra, you know, returns to her chambers uh, and is is there when in gallivants her husband Lenor and his very good friend Carl Corey. They're singing a Westerosi favorite, the body song, The Bear and the Maiden Fair. Always excited to hear that. And Lenor is clearly well into his cups. He's living a very different life from Rhaenyra, as we can kind of see here. As her husband and future king consort, there's less pressure on Lenor than there is on Rhaenyra. As she points out, he's been able to enjoy somewhat of a rich and easy life, uh, but Lenor doesn't appear satisfied by this. You know, a warrior and a dragon rider himself being kept in court apparently has bored him. Lenor's feeling the need for adventure and mentions that there's fighting again in the Stepstones. Carl has been there, filling his head with tales of conquest and adventure and sapphires, and Lenor wants a taste of all of that, along with perhaps a taste of freedom to live more openly with his current boyfriend. We also get a mention of this new power in the Stepstones as the Triarchy has made an alliance with Dorne, the southern region of Westeros that is not yet part of the Seven Kingdoms. Dorne is actually a familiar enemy of the Targaryens at this point, who spent a good deal of the previous century trying to bring them into the realm unsuccessfully. Now, remember, Aegon's prophecy was interpreted to mean that all of Westeros needed to unite under one banner to, you know, fight the Long Night. So there's an even more vested interest now in dealing with this new power now that Dorne is involved, and they're more dangerous. Lenor speaks of a flamboyant Tyroshi captain general described as wearing women's frocks and dyeing his beard purple. Talking about Recalio Rindune here. We know that in Tyrosh, where he's from, unusual hair dyes are actually pretty typical. You know, fun fact, Dario Naharis from the main series was meant to have blue hair and beard with a golden mustache. So it's nice to see that this series is being a little bit more true to the source material in terms of like the cultural differences of Planetos. We we can remember that a younger Rhaenyra was actually very proactive in terms of her her approach or her desired approach to dealing with the Stepstones, being one of the ones who thought they should send dragons and be very aggressive with it. But here we see her actively forbid Lenor from involving himself in the new conflict. To her, the danger to herself and her immediate family has shifted. With the renewed rumors about her children's true father, she feels that she needs Lenor present to continue to show a united front against their detractors. Lenor pushes back, mocking the idea that these are merely accusations about her sons or their sons. And she says that they must weather the storm in King's Landing together. But Lenor, an actual experienced sailor, pushes back with uh, the idea that the wise sailor flees the storm as it gathers. Unable to see eye to eye here, Rhaenyra chooses to exert her, the power of her station over her husband, commanding him to stay in King's Landing and at her side. 
with Harwin preparing to leave, the princess needs an ally, uh, need for an ally actually outweighs whatever Lenor's desire is for adventure on the Narrow Sea. And speaking of the Narrow Sea, let's now turn our focus to Pentos again and the drama that's playing out there with Damon, Lena and their children. Emily, why don't you continue and take us through this very domestic scene? Sure. Yeah, we return to Pentos and we see Lena checking in on her daughter, Reyna. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, she's the only one in their little family unit who isn't a dragon rider. So it's really heartbreaking to see her, you know, heating her egg under the fire. Her mother, Lena, enters and, you know, tries to gently encourage her daughter. You know, even if your egg doesn't hatch, it's not the only way that you could become a dragon rider. Lena says, if you wish to be a rider, you must claim that right. And she's right. Even if the egg there hatches, one still must bond themselves to their dragon in the way that we saw with Jace trying to do earlier with Vermax. So, you know, I had really hoped to see Lena claim Vagar, you know, on screen. I think everyone did. But it's nice to at least hear about that experience and to get a little insight into it. Not does not only does this give her daughter some hope, but it also, you know, frames and sets up the possibility of more characters claiming dragons down the road. Reyna expresses some hurt during this scene regarding a perceived rejection from her father, um, you know, something maybe many a lot of people can relate to. She thinks that he only pays attention to her twin because Bela is a dragon rider and she yearns for the closeness that, you know, her twin has with their dad. You know, there may be some truth to that, considering that we saw Damon teaching only Bela High Valyrian earlier. You know, Lena does her best to continue to reassure Reyna here, but man, do I really feel for that little girl. You know, there's definitely some parallels between her and Aemond, both somewhat outcasts in their own families for not yet claiming a dragon. You know, and then finally, we, we have another scene in Pentos following this where we see Lena, you know, join Damon on the battlements of their Pentashi keep, you know, kind of a familiar scene of got the kids tucked into bed and regroup as, as parents. Uh, she tells him that her brother wrote and they acknowledge the birth of Prince Joffrey. Damon jokes about a remarkable but entirely coincidental resemblance to Harwin. You know, a seemingly funny line, but it underlines how obvious the truth of the prince's true parentage is to others. Lena says, you know, she misses her family and misses Westeros, but Damon only misses the strong line, he, he claims. Uh, just like Lena, the audience isn't really meant to believe him. Damon is restless in Pentos and spends his days immersed in Valyrian histories, reading about dragons, practicing high Valyrian, clearly still very invested in his Targaryen identity. She acknowledges that even if she was not his first choice as wife, and, you know, he kind of cuts her off there, but she, she, this is hinting that she knows of his true feelings for Rhaenyra. Uh, but it also seems uh, like many who marry for political reasons, that she's accepted that and the pair, you know, have come to really love each other. Uh, the dialogue sets up Damon for a potential return to Westeros in the future, spurred by Lena's encouragement here and, and her desire to return home and, and be close to her family. Whether or not that comes to pass, we'll have to wait and see on the coming Sunday. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yes, we will. And from Pentos, why don't we come back to King's Landing and discuss the small council and the and the scene with Lionel that followed. So we return to the small council chamber just once in this episode. There's a couple of new councillors. Most notably, the Queen is now taking part in these meetings. And we also meet Lord Jasper Wilde, known as Ironrod, who is the Master of Laws. Maester Orwell, who we met in episode 5, is sitting in the Grand Maester's seat, meaning Melos has apparently died off-screen, and I think we can all agree, good riddance on that one. He was not treating the king very well. Tyland Lannister and Lord Beesbury are still there too, but Beesbury is now quite ancient, and he's apparently struggling to follow the conversation when the topic changes. They begin with a discussion of the ongoing feuds between Brackens and Blackwoods and move on to the topic of the Stepstones. In spite of Alison attempting to control the situation by dismissing both subjects as of no concern to the Crown, Rhaenyra intervenes and makes thoughtful points in both cases, illustrating once again the power struggle between the princess and the queen, with Rhaenyra seeming to come out ahead in those matters of policy. Yeah, I really thought she did. Uh, You know, if it was about scoring points, I think she scored a couple there. Really, each interaction between the two women in this meeting exemplifies their entrenched rivalry. But Rhaenyra ends the meeting by offering an olive branch. She stands up, she apologizes for the offenses of her sons. She says that she wishes their house to be united, as it should be, suggesting a marriage between Jaceris, her heir, and Helena. She also offers Aemond the pick of Cyrax's next clutch of eggs. And Viserys is actually seems like he's beside himself. He's so happy. And honestly, while we could argue all day whether Rhaenyra was being sincere or cynical, I'm sure people have different takes uh, on that point. I really think she's presenting the correct political approach. Uh, Like her father and unlike the queen, Rhaenyra has this implicit understanding that the unity of the royal house is essential politically uh, for them to succeed. And this probably in large part gets back to the fact that Viserys and Rhaenyra are the only two people who know about Aegon's prophecy and the burden that it places upon his progeny. 
so, but instead of contemplating the olive branch, Allison chooses to humiliate her stepdaughter by pointing out that her milk is let down and her breasts are leaking through her dress. Uh, this is an interesting plot point to pursue in light of the setting. Uh, earlier, there had been some discussion in Rhaenyra's private chamber about the baby's new wet nurse and the process of Rhaenyra allowing her own milk supply to dry up. But that was, and that's not something that's easy and it's not without complications, but this was all handled privately. Um, now we see that her stepmother humiliates her in front of a group of men who will one day have to look to Rhaenyra as their sovereign. It's subtle. It's purely vindictive on Alison's part. And She's highlighting Rhaenyra's femininity and the implied weakness that goes along with it, putting her on her back foot just as Rhaenyra has asserted herself in the council and made a number of very good points. This is a move taken right from the pages of Patriarchy 101, confirming the dynamic of Alicent being so lost in the machinations of male power that she is willing to sacrifice herself and her female allies to support the institutional status quo. And following this, uh, after the small council meeting ends, you get the scene of everybody leaving. Alison and Viserys are talking. She makes her refusal of Rhaenyra's proposal very plain to the king. She says to him, you may do as you please when I am cold in my grave. Uh, I think that really speaks volumes about the power the queen now has over her aging and ailing husband. It's almost impossible to imagine Lady Alicent uh, as she drew the distinction a few episodes back between Lady Alicent and the queen. Uh, I can't see her behaving in this manner. So clearly the shift that began in episode five has led to a huge change in dynamics as Lady Alicent now fully commands the role of Queen Alicent, uh, even to the extent that she is um, now dominates the king. Uh, so as we see these moments of her domineering her husband, she's treating him like an invalid. This is These are really all... Uh, Things that are done in order to disempower him, making him feel that he relies on her, making him feel weak. You know, these are these are classic uh, power moves. So in walks uh, Lionel Strong, um, visiting into the king in his chamber because he would like to resign his post due to his son's transgression. The king absolutely will not hear of it. He cites their long and successful relationship, their friendship. He even makes a dig at Alicent and her father by remarking on Lionel's unique lack of self-interest over the years. Uh, Viserys' refusal to accept the resignation of his honest, honorable, and steadfast hand has such strong vibes of uh, Robert Baratheon refusing to let Ned resign in A Game of Thrones he, when he said to him, like it or not, you are my hand, damn you. I forbid you to leave. Uh, Viserys didn't use such colorful language, but basically he refuses to take the resignation. With Alicent listening to every word, uh, I kind of felt like she was a raptor ready to pounce on, uh, on a stray word by Lord Lionel. And uh, she grew more exasperated by the minute when she fails to get what she was hoping for because Lionel refuses 
to specify what his son's transgression was, knowing full well that it could lead to his son's death and possibly his grandson's deaths and definitely to Alicent's victory over Rhaenyra. Instead, Lord Lionel asks for and is granted leave to escort Harwin to Harrenhal, there to take up his duties as heir, and Alicent storms out. She's no longer so worried about the king's welfare. Uh, She just leaves him. And next time we see her, she's with Lord Lionel's second son, Laris Strong. Um, Brian Condell described Laris Strong as one of our villains in the Inside the Episode feature. And this episode really cements that characterization. His relationship with the Queen began in the last episode when he also offered her a friendship of sorts. Alicent was lonely and isolated, confused by Rhaenyra's behavior. She felt hurt and betrayal as her stepdaughter acted with disregard for what Alicent saw as her duty and rules of propriety. In contrast with Kristen Cole, who's shown to defer to the Queen in all things, though, we will see that Laris seems to have an upper hand in their interactions, probably due to the nature of him being the bearer of intelligence. When Alicent storms out of Viserys' chambers following the interview with Lord Lionel, she arrives in her own private chamber to join Laris for an intimate dinner already in progress. And their sort of comfort together and Laris' comments about his role as information gatherer, indicating this isn't the first time that they've shared this experience together. Uh, Considering that Alicent dismisses her maid, uh, I think that this act alone, entertaining a single man in her chamber alone, could be enough to raise eyebrows and start rumors, but she seems blind to the impropriety of it. Uh, said she's really just obsessed with, you know, this sort of information gathering uh, about Rhaenyra and Harwin. So here she is once again discussing Rhaenyra and Harwin, although her husband has asked her to drop the subject three times so far in the episode. Uh, and I, I think that his exasperation leads to the impression that her talking about Rhaenyra and Harwin is probably a daily occurrence. Uh, he's just sick of hearing it, really. Um, so uh, we get her also talking about her husband's distressing unwillingness to acknowledge his daughter's transgressions. Alicent seems really blind to the weakness that doing so, acknowledging what's going on publicly, uh, would place Tar- House Targaryen in. Viserys is wise enough to, uh, at least to realize that unity of the royal house is of the utmost importance, as I was saying earlier, as is Rhaenyra, uh, citing it as one of the reasons for the olive branch that she offered in that small council meeting. Alicent is instead bent on destroying her stepdaughter, and in Lara Strong, she's found a willing ally, though, as we'll see, his motivations are even more expressly self-interested than Sir Kristen's are. It's during this dinner that Alicent makes the following exclamation, In all of King's Landing, is there no one to take my side? She's bemoaning the fact that no one wants to entertain her accusations against Rhaenyra, without ever asking the critical question of why. And she's just wishing that her father was back in the capital, because obviously her father would listen to her and support her. Lyra Strong is all ears here, and we'll have more on this in a little bit. Yeah, last week I think I said that I really like Laris, but 
it's not. <laughs> I think I might have changed my mind <laughs> because immediately <laughs> after Alison and Laris's candlelit conversation, he's shown making his way into the dark dungeons of the Red Keep. We see a shot of Laris's walking stick, which has a firefly embedded into the handle. There's a cell of prisoners and Laris calls them a collection of heroes, a murderer, a deviant and a traitor to the crown who have all been sentenced to death by hanging. When he offers them freedom and mercy, he obviously wants something in return and one of the things he wants in return is their tongues and he has them cut out. This is to prevent them from divulging things that Laris has said to them and does remind us of Illin Payne and the Little Birds from the main series. Jamie Lannister felt comfortable enough around Illin to say things he wouldn't say to others. And even more pertinently, the master of Whisperers Varys had the tongues removed from his flock of little birds, impoverished child spies, to prevent them from gossiping. As we witness the graphic tongue-cutting scene, we know Laris must have a really serious plan underfoot to employ these criminals and mutilate them like this. We'll see that plot, plot unfolding later, but for now, I'll just say that the next time we see these three men, they're wearing Laris's firefly symbol. Laris Strong is not messing around, and if he seemed like a little finger-esque, higher-level game player with his manipulation of Alison in the previous episode... Now things have gone up several notches and he does seem more like a, Lara, a Littlefinger Varys crossover. So stay tuned and we're going to discuss what happens next because it's one of the it's one of the uh, central moments of the episode that comes at the end. But for now, why don't we head back to Essos and go to the free city of Pentos to catch up what's been going on over there, Emily? Yeah, yeah. I think I've spent most of this episode in Pentos, it feels like. you know. So we arrive back for the uh, second birth of the episode. Lena Valarian is laboring for her third child. Despite her wish for her child to be born on Driftmark like she was, the baby has come while they're still in Pentos. This makes sense because she was pretty darn pregnant when, we, when she first made that statement. Uh, crossing the narrow sea by dragonback or by ship was you know, not really very possible. So we think she was probably referring to future children that she and Damon could have. But that de that detail makes the events to come even more tragic, I think, and could provide some motivation for the family's eventual return to Westeros in a future episode. Again, this birthing scene is presented in contrast with Emma's labor in episode one. Uh, Lena is standing, like Gwen mentioned that Rhaenyra uh, was before. Uh, this is a better delivery position than we saw Emma in. Her team includes both male and female midwives rather than a single maester and a bunch of kind of silent, you know, handmaids like Emma had, or the all-female midwives like Rhaenyra. You know, maesters are specific to Westeros, so it's unclear, uh, you know, what titles her delivery team had, but it was a notably different atmosphere than Emma in a couple of ways you know, who was at the mercy of what I would like to call perpetual chump, uh, who I think is now deceased, Archmaester Melos. Nevertheless, things are not going well for Elena here. Yeah, they're going so bad. Well, we know what happens next. With the baby stuck and the Pentoshi doctor admitting to being at the edge of his art, and in contrast to Emma Aaron in the first episode, 
Lena has the agency, at least, to make a decision of her own. In immense pain, she drags herself outside to the spot where they have Vagar chained up. Earlier in the episode, the dragon tamers in the pit informed the kids just how strong the bond between dragon and rider could be, that once bonded a dragon wouldn't listen to anyone else. Here we have this heart-wrenching scene where Lena is asking her dragon to immolate her. This is in keeping with Lena's, Lena's adventurous spirit and wish to live and die like a dragon rider. And so some of the earlier character work did pay off there. So we get a close look at Vagar, the largest and oldest dragon in the story, who looks forlorn. She almost looked like Falcor from the never-ending story for a moment. And then, of course, she bathed Lena in flame as Damon arrived to the scene, too late to do anything but watch. Although there are some similarities in the books, things happened a little differently. So what happened was that she died of childbed fever, but she did make an attempt to go out to Vagar, although she collapsed on the way out to Vagar and she died there. Here in the show... Lena died the way she wanted to, and overall we got a strong impression of her spirit and bold nature. Another example of the writers doing a lot of work with limited screen time. But, of course, Lena would not be the only tragedy of this episode, Lady Gwyn. Well, no, but uh, she is not. I I want to say one thing before we, we move on to the next, unfortunately, the next tragedy. I want to add that Lena really chose her death with agency that was gifted to her by her husband. This is a very unusual situation for this time when men seem to hold all the power in these situations. Although that male attendant wasn't a maester, he definitely did defer to Damon on the question of whether to use the knife. And I thought it, found it interesting that, as I suggested in our episode one review, Damon did not in the end make the same choice that his brother did. And so Lena's death would be very different from that of her cousin Emma or that of another relative who I thought about uh, over the last couple weeks. As described in Fire and Blood, uh, Lena's great-grandmother, Alyssa Valerian, whose husband Rogar Baratheon, was forced uh, to make a similar choice during the birth of Lena's grandmother, Jocelyn Baratheon. In that situation, you had Jaehaerys and Alysanne on hand uh, to force uh, a drunk Rogar Baratheon to make the heartbreaking choice to let the maesters operate on their mother in order to save the baby Jocelyn. Uh, but every time this topic comes up, it's made clear that the husbands are who hold the power to decide. And here, uh, Damon Targaryen wouldn't or couldn't make the decision. So whatever his intentions were, the result was Lena, like you said, yoke boy dying on her own terms. And um, I think that we have to applaud that in, in some way. So let us now head back to King's Landing um, for this parallel scene and the conclusion of the episode yeah so the the appearance of a third plain featured son for Rhaenyra coupled by Harwin's actions in the training yard essentially make it necessary for him to remove himself from court before things escalate further or he puts his lover and their sons in any further danger you know it's a short scene with him you know stepping in to say farewells to his little secret family 
on its face, it seems like Harwin is resigned to stepping into his, the role of heir of Harrenhal, though he, you know, rues having to leave them. I wonder how much he would have liked for his own father to be a little bit more self-serving, a bit more Otto Hightower when it came to advising the king on the royal betrothal many years ago. The scene has huge parallels to the main series uh, and was steeped in plenty of foreshadowing for being one of the shorter scenes. Much like Ned promising to see Jon Snow again or, you know, Davos and his last conversations with his sons before the Blackwater, Harwin promises his boys that he'll see them again. In the world of ice and fire, we know that these types of promises rarely come true. When Harwin moves to Rhaenyra and baby Joffrey, he tells them, I'll be a stranger when we next meet, uh, which I immediately connected with the stranger, an aspect of a god that represents death in the faith of the seven. Harwin certainly meant it another way, that their newborn son would not recognize him and that this distance would be putting an end to his relationship with Rhaenyra. But man, that line absolutely crushed me. I got chills when I first heard him say it. As he walks away, we see Jace follow Harwin into the hallway, and then Rhaenyra follows them with Joffrey. He asks his mother if Harwin is his father, if he's a bastard. This likely was something he picked up from that training yard scene earlier, and I think it will likely be something reinforced by Prince Aegon moving forward. There's there's book evidence for that anyway. Rhaenyra rebuffs him, saying, you are a Targaryen. Considering that all the, uh, that the kids are all meant to be called Valerians and Till one ascends the Iron Throne, this could be seen almost as tacit confirmation of Jace's fears, but it also strikes at something core to Rhaenyra's character. She believes that being Targaryen is enough, that it's part of their destiny to rule. It smacks a bit of Viserys, if, uh, you know, if I say it, it must be true, uh, which we know only goes so far. This statement uh, may not have the sway over the common folks or the greens that she hopes it does. So, on to... The most tragic <laughs> event involving Harwin, yeah. Damon lost his partner in the episode. Rhaenyra is going to lose her lover too. As I said earlier, the next time we see Laris's three tongueless criminals, they're wearing his firefly symbol, clearly marking them as his servants. Given that he'd had them mutilated, he must have offered them benefits other than their freedom to make them remain this loyal to him but yeah now Laris has a little band of men to do his dirty work they're seen at Harren Hall waiting in the shadows looking on ominously as Lionel and Harwin's entourage pass them on the approach to their family seat we know that there's a plot underfoot and at this moment book readers realized what that plot was going to be as the Strongs attempt to get some rest after a long journey, they smell smoke. Someone, I wonder who, has barricaded them in, in their rooms and set fire to the building. Harwin is separated from his father and is screaming that he's going to burn alive. Lionel tries to free his son, but there was plenty of smoke in his room too. Lady Gwyn is going to do a line-by-line analysis of Laris's poetic voiceover in a moment, but let's quickly talk about book canon. In Fire and Blood, there's a similar blaze at Harrenhal. The main difference is being told via a historical tome. We don't know for sure who started it. It's an enduring mystery built up around several different rumours. So let me read the passage. Lionel Strong accompanied Sir Harwin on his return to the great half-ruined castle on the lakeshore. 
Shortly after their arrival, a fire broke out in the tower where they were sleeping and both father and son were killed. The cause of the fire was never determined. Some put it down to simple mischance, while others muttered that Black Heron's seat was cursed. Many suspected the blaze was set intentionally. Mushrooms suggest that the sea snake was behind it as an act of vengeance against the man who had cuckolded his son. Septon Eustace suspects Prince Damon removing a rival for Prince Princess Rhaenyra's affections. Others have put forth the notion that Laris Clubfoot might have been responsible. With his father and elder brother dead, Laris Strong became the Lord of Harrenhal. The most disturbing possibility was advanced by Grand Maester Melos, who muses that the king himself might have given the command. If Viserys had come to accept that the rumours about the parentage of Rhaenyra's children were true, he might well have wished to remove the man who had dishonoured his daughter, lest he somehow reveal the bastardy of her sons. So that's four different rumours circulating in Fire and Blood. Although show canon is not equal to book canon, they're two separate things, it was interesting to see the show name Laris as the chief architect to his father and brother's doom. Here, nobody beside Laris, Alison, and the three tongueless assassins know the truth of the situation. Different characters in human universe might reach different conclusions, and given we, the audience, know who's behind it. It's going to be really interesting going forward to see how it's discussed and viewed in-universe. Yeah, I think you're right. And, uh, you know, that's the nature of history, to be honest, as George tries to show us with all those multiple point of views in Fire and Blood. But speaking of history, before we move on to that final sequence, I'm going to ask you to indulge me for a moment of real-life history. Because there's a famous incident from English history, which is the clear inspiration for the strong deaths as they were presented in the show. In the 12th century, King Henry II was engaged in a conflict with his Archbishop of Canterbury, a man named Thomas Becket, over the rights of the church versus the crown. Uh, the church had long contended that a secular ruler had no jurisdiction over its institutions and the individuals within it, which thus existed more or less outside of whatever particular kingdom they physically resided in. Uh, this is a concept that has huge legal implications that affect our laws to this very day, um, looking at all the churches in the world that are, uh, are you know, don't pay taxes and uh, many other things. We don't have to get into that. We'll, we'll leave that in-depth discussion to our friends over at Learned Hands podcast. Uh, but in a nutshell, among other things, Thomas Becket infuriated his king by refusing to grant the crown jurisdiction over criminal cases regarding clerics. Hmm. Uh, he went as far as to use his position as the Archbishop of Canterbury to excommunicate uh, bishops who were more amenable to the king's position. And when news of that arrived at Henry's court, histories written long after the fact attributed the following line to the king, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? And so taking that exclamation as an order, four knights of the court swiftly traveled to Canterbury, entered the cathedral with swords drawn, and killed the archbishop right inside the church, which is a huge no-no in medieval Christendom. Uh, probably in the modern world too, but, but it was really like you, you're excommunicated uh, for, for bringing violence into the church. So ultimately, 
Henry himself was held responsible for this and he was forced to do penance and make loads of concessions while uh, Thomas Becket was made a saint, uh, the patron saint of my childhood parish. Fun fact. <laughs> this relevance, of course, is that as soon as I heard Alicent say in the show, in all of King's Landing, is there no one to take my side? I thought of Henry II and of Thomas a. Beckett, and I knew that the show was going to take the position that Larry Strong was responsible for his father and brother's deaths, that uh, he and his trio of silent assassins would stand in for Henry's four knights, Alicent for King Henry, caught in a trap of his own words, and Lionel and Harwin sharing the role of Beckett, murdered in the sanctuary of their home. So we all know that George loves his medieval history, but since this wasn't presented as a given in Fire and Blood, as Yokeboy said, I think that here we have to give a huge amount of credit to the writing team for including this cultural reference absolutely in keeping with the source material and uh, George's methods. So once again, kudos to the writers for this little piece of the episode. Yes, yeah, so the conclusion of this episode features a voiceover of a monologue by Laris Strong on the subject of children and legacy. Not only something we've already seen as a major theme of importance to Viserys, but one that will become highly prevalent as more and more of the next generation take centre stage going forward, according to the writers and showrunners. In light of which, Laris's cynical take, as it pairs with individual scenes, can be viewed as a collection of pred predictive snapshots of our cast. So now let's get to that line-by-line -line analysis that we mentioned of the final few minutes of this episode. Why don't you take it away, Lady Gwen? So, it begins, What are children but a weakness, a folly, a futility? This overlays Rhaenyra and her family arriving on Dragonstone, fleeing the gathering storm in King's Landing. And it was the issue of her children that drove her away from the capital and led to Harwin's banishment and death. Rhaenyra has retreated specifically to protect her family, but her retreat could be viewed as a weakness or admission of guilt by her enemies at court. So folly, weakness, perhaps futility, all right there. Through them, you imagine you cheat the great darkness of its victory. You will persist forever in some form or another. This is paired with Viserys sitting by his model city looking sad. I remember his concern for his legacy that we discussed in the last episode. And the foreshadowing rat makes his weekly appearance here, symbolizing, among other things, the rot in Viserys' reign. Uh... The rat gets bolder with each appearance, I think. Uh, note in this episode, Viserys stops and stares at it for a long second. Uh, then Laris continues, As if they will keep you from the dust, but for them you surrender what you should not. And we move from Viserys' concern for his own legacy to scenes from Harrenhal, where Laris has ensured that his own father's legacy has turned to ash. You may know what is the right thing to be done, but love stays the hand. Still at Harrenhal, we see the bodies being brought out and the three assassins wearing Laris' symbol. This particular line is a message to Alicent. I've done what you could not, but I've done it for you. And he ends with, love is a downfall. Best make your way through life unencumbered. So we leave Harrenhal for a final glimpse of Pentos, Damon and his grieving daughters, looking lost and alone. 
Presumably, Lena's death will lead the remnants of her family back to Westeros, and Damon, who has been unencumbered for most of the story, now has something to care about. And presumably the suggestion here is that things are going to get complicated for the rogue prince. And uh, obviously less of a suggestion, but, uh, you know, more of an overt statement that Laris views himself as making his way through life unencumbered, especially now that he's rid himself of his father and brother. And his monologue ends with him in Alicent's chambers telling her about the deaths at Harrenhal, offhandedly mentioning Harren's curse as some sort of justification. Alicent knows this was no accident and seems horrified by what's happened. Laris just smiles and mentions the queen making a wish and that he hopes she'll write to her father. He also says, I feel certain you will reward me in time and pointedly picks one of those red flowers he compared her to in episode five out of an arrangement on the table. According to episode writer Sarah Hess, this was the equivalent of netting her. He lets her know what's been done, implies that it's been done in her name and that he expects a reward for her service. Alison is trapped. She's placed her trust in the wrong man, her jealousy and frustration with the friend, leaving her to make alliances with men whose friendship appeared to offer her the agency she craved, but who in reality represent the patriarchy using her to its own ends. Okay, so that is our that is our walkthrough analysis of the episode so far. But at the the end of the episode, we're going to have a spoiler section, so stay for that. And now we're going to have uh, lighten the mood with a couple of featurettes that we do every week. We've got Dragon Watch and we've got Champ or Chump. Lady Gwyn, why don't we start with Dragon Watch? Okay. This week on Dragon Watch, we had a virtual bonanza of dragons and eggs, starting with baby Joffrey's cradle egg, eventually to be the dragon Tyraxes, then Jaceris's Vermax, and no, that was not a pink dragon, but yes, it was Cyrax, and of course, the ever-amazing Caraxes, and our first glimpse of the awe-inspiring Vagar, as well as Reyna Targaryen's egg. Additionally, a number of other dragons are mentioned. Aegon Sunfire, and alluded to but not mentioned by name, are Lucerus's Arax and Bela Targaryen's Moondancer. So what do you guys think of the dramatic increase in dragony presence? Oh my gosh, I was I was very excited to see so many dragons. Uh, we got little baby dragons. We got big giant dragons. I bet you know I've been talking about how how much I've been waiting to see Vagar for a long time, and it was it was really glorious. She was like kind of, you know, definitely old, definitely like I think the showrunner said she was like literally falling apart a little bit, and you could see some of that. I think the detail they did was was really amazing. You know, contrasting to a little tiny, you know, cow sized dragon. Uh, <laughs> The, the the writers said that when they think about Vega, they think of a B fifty two bomber, something which is is really difficult to get off the ground, but once in the air can just sort of, you know, take this vantage point and do huge amounts of damage from the air. But landing it and taking off is very difficult. So they really thought it thought it out. That's a good comparison they made. Okay, why don't we do Champ or Chump? I think this week. Emily, would you name the champ of the week? I would. 
you know, I think we've got to give it to Rhaenyra this week. Anyone that fresh from delivering a baby should not be dragging themselves up the stairs, but she does it anyway because she needs to show strength to Allison. And she also doesn't probably want Allison alone with her newborn. Considering what Allison said to Lenor, uh, you can kind of see why. Yeah. Uh, what about Aegon? His window hobbies. <laughs> You've, you've got to give him credit because you could see it was a nice sunny day. So he's just trying to get an even tan, I think. Oh, oh is that what he was doing? Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting interpretation. <laughs> okay, why don't we move on to the chump of the week, Lady Gwyn. As tempting as it is to give Kristen Cole this award in perpetuity, well, maybe he'd have to share it with uh, Grandmaster Melos. Uh, but uh, especially in light of his um, sort of overwrought defamation of a woman that he spent one night with 10 years ago, I had to defer to kinslaying. That wins the day. So this week's chump is Lara Strong. Uh, I, I love that you say I had to defer to kinslaying. <laughs> of all these horrible things that happen, we're going we're gonna to go with kinslaying as the worst this time. This game is going to get really, really difficult and interesting, Hard. isn't it? Yeah, because every week so many people get chump yeah. here, you know? It'll just be chump of the week. There'll be no champ. It's just going to be chump. Okay, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed those little sections. Now... Let's round things up with a spoilery section to say things that we couldn't say in the spoiler-free episode. Now we're going to let it all out, Things, moments we bit our tongue. So, Lady Gwen, take it away. Spoilers all books. I am going to start by going back to the beginning of the episode for some symbolism. When Rhaenyra brought baby Joffrey to see Alicent in that first scene, we see that she leaves a trail of blood in her wake. And I thought that was very interesting. I think it speaks volumes about Rhaenyra's determination, but it says a whole lot about Alicent's manipulation of the situation. Given that Alicent's actions in the aftermath of Viserys' death, uh, seizing the crown for her son will uh, occur as Rhaenyra is having a much less easy birth, which is going to result in a stillborn daughter named Visenya, whose death Rhaenyra will blame upon the queen and her allies. Uh, Not to mention the wider trail of the blood of this next generation of children, which will follow the conflict between the two women uh, who gave this episode its name. I have to wonder at the implied symbolism. I mean... Alicent caused this to happen. I mean, uh, I, I read this basically as Rhaenyra's determination and stubbornness is a large part of the conflict as it was as it was what was driving her to make that walk up the stairs. But also that Alicent is the primary instigator, as she was in that scene. She could simply have refrained from making that demand, avoiding the trail of blood, so to speak, as she could also refrain from opposing her husband, the king's wishes regarding this succession, thus avoiding another trail of blood, including that of her own children. So powerful stuff at the very beginning of the episode, very subtle, but I do not think it was unintentional. Uh, Another small moment 
in that uh, beginning sequence whose definition or whose uh, explanation is definitely spoilery. Uh, you might have noticed on her way up the stairs to Allison's chamber, Rhaenyra passes by a Lord Caswell who congratulates her and follows up with an offer to be of service to which Rhaenyra replies, the day may yet come, my lord. And she just seems a little bit tired and exasperated and she keeps going. But keep an eye on Lord Caswell because he will soon be among those who pay the ultimate price for their loyalty to Rhaenyra following Viserys' death uh, when I expect we will be seeing his head on a spike outside the Red Keep. So, uh, yep, just a little, little Easter egg of something yet to come. And one more small thing that I noticed uh, was very small, but I thought it was cute. During the scene in the dragon pit, you had Jace being instructed in Valyrian. And later on in Pentos, we saw Damon teaching Bela Valyrian. Uh, the obvious reason is that, you know, these kids are both young dragon riders and Valyrian is the magical language that's used to control the beasts. But on another level, we've seen Valyrian used as Daemon and Rhaenyra's uh, love language. That was a description, I believe, uh, by Emma Darcy. And here's the spoilery bit. Jaceris and Bela will be betrothed eventually. And though they won't ever actually have the chance to marry in Fire and Blood, it's implied that they did become quite close. So I do like to think that we'll get to see these two older uh, conversing in Valyrian as a way of showing emotional closeness, uh, just as we've seen with their parents. And even if not, even if that's not the way they play it, the pairing of those two, two via those two scenes just struck me somehow as significant. You know, it was a definite, uh, it was a definite parallel pairing. So yeah, keep an eye on that. It's nice to see the younger generations passing down like something good instead of just all of their like trauma and problems. I don't know. <sighs> so we've we've covered Harwin in great detail already in the pre-spoilers section, so I won't retread that ground. But I did want to talk about some of the changes that were made to this character between book and show now that our time with him has unfortunately come to an end. Harwin Strong, known as Breakbones, was considered the strongest man in the realm during his day. Uh, you could kind of see that when he was just absolutely like bodying people to get to Rhaenyra at the wedding. One thing that the show changed is that Harwin was an actual suitor vying for Rhaenyra who paid court to her in 112 AC. Whereas while he did kind of give her the eyes at the hunt, we saw Lord Strong, his father, firmly reject his chance to put forth Harwin. Instead, the wise hand suggested Lenor for political reasons, setting him apart from the self-serving former hand Otto Hightower. Talk about a big what-if moment. According to the dubious tales of Mushroom, Harwin and Rhaenyra's relationship began directly after Kristen Cole rejected the princess. Though it seems that the affair probably started after Rhaenyra's marriage to Laenor, based on show canon. Uh, there were changes to the wedding festivities as well, which we didn't. We talked a little bit about last week, with, with Joffrey Lawnmouth's death happening at tourney rather than welcome feast. Uh, but Kristen wasn't done at the tourney. He also shattered Harwin's elbow and collarbone in the tourney, uh, fighting in a black rage for Queen Alicent. Harwin was later mocked with a new nickname by the Greens, Broken Bones, due to that fight. 
In the intervening years, Harwin served as, served as Rhaenyra's sworn shield. That post gave Harwin ample reasons to stay close to the princess rather than in the show position of city watch commander. Part of why this was likely changed is that Rhaenyra, you know, spent a little bit more time going back and forth between Dragonstone than I think the show really had to cover with the time gap. He was eventually dismissed not by his father, but by King Viserys himself uh, following a fight involving Alicent and Rhaenyra's children and accusations about the latter's parentage. Uh, this dismissal likely gave rise to the rumors that it was Viserys, not Larry Strong, who ordered the fire at Hall that killed Sir Harwin and his father. Other culprits, because this was, you know, hot goss back in the day, uh, included Lord Corliss Valarian, angry that Harwin cuckolded his son. Prince Damon, potentially eliminating a competitor for Rhaenyra's affections. And Sir Otto, who wanted his handship back. Uh, interesting, given the trope of that grasper, grasping younger son offing his elders for a lordship, that very few in the books really deemed to consider Laris a potential subject, uh, kind of goes and speaks to his skill and prowess in terms of, you know, manipulating public opinion and spreading rumor and gossip. So hopefully we see a little bit of that next episode. Okay, so for my spoilery talk, earlier in this episode, I analyzed the scene with Helena where she's discussing insects with Alicent. And then a Kingsguard drags Eamon into the room. Recall that Elena is talking about a millipede crawling over her fingers and comments that while it has eyes, it can't see. When Eamon arrives, Alison promises that one day he'll have a dragon. And at that exact moment, Helena murmurs that one day he'll, uh, that when that happens, he'll have to close an eye. Given that she she just been talking about the millipede's eyes and the fact that the editing, editing cuts are really rapid, the audience can be forgiven for thinking that her comment was aimed at the insect. But this could be clever misdirection. Looking closer, the writers seem to be weaving in foreshadowing very cunningly here. Book readers know that Aemond loses an eye after the first time he rides a dragon. He sneaks up on Vagar and mounts her, and immediately afterwards a fight breaks out with the Rhaenyra's kids, and Jace ends up slashing Aemond's eye out. And so that day, Aemond loses an eye, but gains a dragon. So when Helena says in this episode that he will have to close an eye, she was making an offhand prophecy about Aemond that was lost on her mother and brother. This ability indicates that Helena is a Targaryen dragon dreamer who can see snippets of the future. And it will be interesting to see if we get more lines like this from her or if other characters like Viserys, who's very prophecy orientated, will pick up on her abilities. So we'll have to wait and see. Okay, so that is the end of our analysis today. Finally, a huge thank you to our guest, Emily. What are you up to, Emily? Have you got anything in the pipeline? Yeah, um, tomorrow I will be joining my friend San Rixian on her stream where she'll be doing some art live, taking requests from patrons and uh, chatters alike. So join Sanri, myself, and uh, our friend Cabeth tomorrow. Yeah, uh, other than that, follow me on Twitter. I do a lot of memes and, uh, you know, talking about Hot D mostly. Maybe a little Dungeons & Dragons too. Okay, so that's at Emily of the Eerie if you're listening on Twitter. And if you want to follow Radio Westeros on Twitter, that's our biggest social media account. We're at Radio Westeros. 
yeah, follow us for updates and memes and all that stuff. And if you really enjoy Radio Westeros, consider being a patron. Patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. See all the perks you can get. And we'd love to have you on board with us. And so why don't we end today's broadcast with credits for our Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel patrons. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Goodbye and have a good evening. And take it away, Lady Gwyn. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Eerie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brynden Beefish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Scenarion, The White Storm, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helmet, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.